That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Tucker Carlson is uh, probably one of the more toxic members of the Fox lineup. Uh, He's lost a lot of advertisers as a result of his basically naked racism. Uh, This has been his shtick for years and years and years. Tucker, uh, you know, he's a smart guy. He's a young guy. He knows how to manipulate the media. His father was the CEO, as I recall, or one of the most senior executives at the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for years and years. Uh, You know, he grew up very wealthy, uh, or what relatively, and and, uh, has, you know, positioned himself as the young, smart right winger. And apparently he's the Trump whisperer. There's been some really interesting uh, analyses done uh, by a number of reporters. Uh, The piece that I'm looking at here summarizes Jonathan Swan over at Axios. Uh, He rounded up a bunch of these things. Tucker Carlson saying, For more than a month, mobs of violent, crazy people have roamed this country, terrorizing citizens and destroying things. And then Donald Trump in his 4th of July speech said, Angry mobs who try to tear down statues of our founders to face our most sacred memorials and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. Right. First of all, the mobs have nothing to do with violent crime in our cities. Secondly, if you want to call them mobs, you know, citizens protesting. Secondly, uh, our most sacred memorials. These are not memorials, by the way, to the soldiers who died in the Confederacy. These are not memorials to even Southern culture outside of racism. These are memorials. These are not even memorials. These are statements of white supremacy. These statues were put up to say to black people specifically and non-white people more generally, but specifically to say to black people that white people won You know, they might not have won the Civil War, but they won the peace. They control the country and get back in your place, basically. That's the message that these statues are conveying. And, you know, people are getting it. I mean, white people are starting to get it. Black people have known this for years and years. Tucker Carlson says, The education cartel enforced on your children enforces their demands. Donald Trump, July 4th. 
In our schools, our newsrooms, even our corporate boardrooms, there is a new far-left fascism that demands absolute allegiance. Tucker Carlson, the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution, you'll remember, was the banner, the name, uh, the rubric under which Mao Zedong uh, murdered millions and millions of Chinese to institute Maoism. So here's Tucker Carlson. The Cultural Revolution has come to the West. Donald Trump, make no mistake, this left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American Revolution. Now, there are those people who say that, uh, and, and Tucker Carlson, by the way, his show is now the number one cable TV show in history. 4.3 million viewers on Fox every night. And whether it's Donald Trump writing the speech, which obviously is not what's going on, or Stephen Miller, which is probably what's going on. Stephen Miller, the racist in chief in the White House, you know, like their official pet Gen Z racist, I guess, or Gen Y or whatever he is. It is a remarkable thing. And now you've got Republicans across the country saying, hey, this Tucker Carlson guy, he should be our next president. Because, hey, you know that reality show TV president that we've got right now, Donald Trump, that worked out so well. Why don't we get another reality show TV president, Tucker Carlson? Maybe. I mean, the simple reality is that in 1987, when Ronald Reagan repealed the Fairness Doctrine, the provision that broadcasters had to, quote, broadcast in the public interest, which meant that for television stations that they had to carry an hour of news in primetime, and it had to be actual news, and therefore the networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, they actually all lost money on their news operations because that was the price for these licenses to run these stations was that you have reporters all over the world and that you provide good, comprehensive, real news every single day. Well, that ended in 1987, and the news divisions of all these networks came under the, under the purview, under the control of the entertainment division. And you know, that kind of blew all that all to hell. Right. Plus, there was the provision in the Fairness Doctrine that if a station editorialized, if the, if the opinions of management were being presented, there had to be opposing points of view presented as well. That was all gone. And then, of course, in 96, when Clinton signed the Telecommunications Act, uh, that was the end of local media in the United States. And so now what we have is we have infotainment. And we now have our first infotainment president who pretended to be a billionaire mogul. In fact, he is a failed, washed up, deeply indebted, you know, real estate guy who, who has only been able to stay alive financially over the last 20 years by laundering money for foreign oligarchs, which is why he's so desperately trying to hide his tax returns. And even at that, he's nowhere near as rich as he claims to be. I mean, this is the same thing with other members of his cabinet, shall we say. But this is what he said on the 4th of July. Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign. Oh, my God. These, these, uh, Antifa, these anti-fascists are merciless. They have no mercy. They're not human beings. We, our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history. 
What history is that? Defame our heroes. Our heroes are the generals who rose up against the United States, who slaughtered American troops, and who tried to conquer the United States to impose slavery in the North. And yes, actually, that became one of the marching cries. It wasn't just, oh, we're just trying to defend slavery down here in the South, though. It was, we're trying to bring it to the North. I mean, this was in the Missouri Compromise, you know, it's uh, in the the 1820s, just like blew this thing right into the middle of everything. Where Maine went no no slave and Missouri was slave and just the whole the whole mess. So anyhow, Donald, back to Donald Trump. Our nation is witnessing a merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values. Yes, the value of white supremacy. And indoctrinate our children. <laughs> Teach them actual history. Angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders. Well, yeah, there was a statue of Jefferson that got torn down. But by and large, these are, these are not... These people are not going after the founders. They're going after the, the guys who, who, who declared a war on the United States, the traitors, the, those who committed treason. Deface our most sacred memorials and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. This is Donald Trump. Our most sacred memorials? Really? Are you buying this stuff? Do you know anybody who's buying this stuff? I'm seeing this, this Trumpista group shrink. I mean, yeah, okay, so Tucker Carlson's got 4 million viewers, you know, which is quite an accomplishment, but it's a nation of 340 million people. It seems to me that what's happening is that the white and proud racists, the white people who are proud of their racism, are actually shrinking in numbers. More of them are coming out, they're more visible, but they're shrinking in numbers. Maybe I'm wrong. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I know there's a whole, you know, a whole effort to indoctrinate the younger generation and make it cool to be like this and all that kind of thing, but do you think it's working? I don't think it is, but maybe I'm wrong. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Just, just to speak to masks very, very briefly. The reason why surgeons have worn masks since the late 19th century is not to protect them from their patients. Doctors don't wear masks to protect the doctor. They wear masks so that when they're cutting you open and looking down into your, into your guts and breathing the particles of moisture that contain bacteria and viruses in their breath are caught in the mask. In other words, so they don't cause you to become infected if you're the patient. And that's why we wear masks. Because if we have an infection and we don't know it, the mask will prevent it from being transmitted. And that's, and frankly, I think that we're gonna find that these Black Lives Matter protests the protests against the murder of George Floyd, et cetera, that happened over the last few weeks, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, I mean, just the whole long list, 
Most of the footage that I saw, people were wearing masks. And uh, it, it seemed very, very rare that they weren't, in fact. So anyway, <clears throat> Tom Harvin here with you and Lewis in Los Angeles. Hey, Lewis, what's up? Hey, how are you, man? Good. What's in your mind? Uh, you know the movie Manhattan? Are you familiar with the movie, the Woody Allen movie, Manhattan? I have not seen it. Oh, okay. Well, there's a great scene where they're in the museum and... and uh, he says, did you guys hear that there's a Nazi rally going on downtown next week? And I think we all ought to grab baseball bats and go down there and show them, you know, we mean business. And one of the art people who's sort of liberal says, well, I don't really agree with physical violence. And Woody Allen says, uh, you know, when it comes to Nazis, physical violence is always the best way to go. And, and I, <laughs> I, I have okay. to say I agree with it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, you know, I, you they'll know, bully you and bully you and bully you. They'll tell you to take off your mask. What is it bugging them if you're wearing a mask? And people are getting so sick. And I live in Los Angeles, man. You know, things are out of control here. Yeah. 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 I think you, you guys know? are looking at the at the consequence of Memorial Day, just like we are here in Oregon. Oregon has just passed 10,000 active cases in the state. And we're a little tiny state. I mean, we're only three, three, four million people here. And it's bizarre. Lewis, thanks. Thanks thanks for the call and thanks for No, you're uh, welcome, man. Your, Just, thanks okay. for your good work too, buddy. Bye bye. Sure. Yeah. Good talking with you. Deb in Minneapolis. Hey Deb, what's up? Hi Tom. I just wanna tell you I was at a fireworks display in a little town by where we live and everybody was social distancing. There were family groups, but everybody was pretty much spread out and everybody was behaving themselves and my son and I were sitting off by ourselves and I'm immunosuppressed so I keep a healthy distance from everybody and we're sitting there kind of watching things and my son said oh uh, there's people coming up it looks like they're going to ask you to sign a petition and I said that's odd and so they stopped and they were somewhat close to me and, and these were young people I'd say probably high schoolish age and it's a young lady and a young man, and they stop, and they've got their little clipboards and a pen. And they said, would you like to sign our petition? Are and I said, masks? no, nope. And oh, I said, okay. uh, could you back up a few steps? I can hear you quite plainly. And she looked surprised, but she backed up, and I said, what is your petition for? And she said, Donald Trump. And I said, oh, is it for his removal? And she said, no. And I said, oh, you'll have to move along. And if I were you, I'd keep my distance from others. Just a, just a word. And mm -hmm. she looked at me, and the, the young man gave us the dirtiest look. And I, I said, well, good yeah. luck with that. Yeah, I know. It's uh, it's here. It's in our face, and it's bizarre that anybody would try to make a a disease a political thing. Deb, thank you for the call. Thanks for sharing your story with us. That's amazing. It's the Tom Hartman program, helping you win the water cooler wars. Three hours a day, five days a week, right here. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. 
and it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Our book club book today is Last Boat Out of Shanghai by Helen Zia, the subtitle, The Epic Story of the Chinese Who Fled Mao's Revolution. This is from the prologue. Shanghai, May 4th, 1949. Bing sat up straight in the pedicab, gripping the hard seat as the driver cursed and spat. She watched with alarm as his feet, clad in sandals cut from old tires, seemed to slow to a snail's pace just when she most needed speed. This stylish-looking young woman had imagined that her last hours in Shanghai would be spent waving farewell from a ship's deck 
to envious onlookers below as a river breeze gently lifted her dark hair just as she'd seen in the movies. After all, she was about to leave China's biggest, most glamorous, and most notorious city. But now, with the imminent threat of a violent communist revolution, she was running away again, along with half the city's population, it seemed. And instead of standing at the rail, exchanging smiles with the ship's other passengers, she was stuck in traffic, terrified that she wouldn't reach the Shanghai Hongkuo Wharf in time. That would spell disaster. She lurched forward as the pedicab driver stood on the pedals of his three-wheeled cycle and came to a stop. Around her was a sea of other pedicabs, rickshaws, cars, buses, carts, and trucks, all screeching and honking, their drivers yelling every manner of obscenity. The cacophony reverberated against the walls of the stone and concrete canyon of Nanjing Road. Bing was no stranger to Shanghai's mayhem, but she'd never seen anything quite like this. Of all times to be stuck in such bedlam, on the very day she had to get to the riverfront, the date set for her departure from this desperate city. She'd sewn her floral print quipois for this special occasion. Each careful stitch had captured her growing anticipation. With her oval face, big eyes, and full red lips all crowned by a tiara of black permanent waves, the 20-year-old might have been mistaken for a coy Shanghai poster girl, but for the panic in her eyes. Like her, everyone in Shanghai seemed to be in a frenzy to escape, to use any means to get away from the impending arrival of the communists. But unlike those who were still clamoring for a seat to anywhere, Bing was one of the lucky ones. She possessed a precious one-way ticket out on a ship to America. Finally, the driver managed to break through the crush. He harangued everyone in his path. She didn't care as long as she got to the wharf. The ship's smokestacks came into view just past the stately Astor House Hotel and the towering 19-story Broadway Mansion's apartments, where the Xinjiao Creek meets the bend of the Waihangpu River, the last major tributary of the mighty Yangtze River, before it joins the East China Sea. Massive granite buildings, all in European style, lined the signature waterfront boulevard and docks. To the foreigners, this prime section of waterfront was known as the Bund, from a Hindustani word meaning embankment. The Chinese called it Waitan, meaning outside or foreign shore, a reference to the foreigners who once ruled this proud imperialist showcase of Shanghai. British and American businessmen had wrested away the best sections of the port city with the full support of the government. Land and sovereignty had been ripped from China, spoils of the opium wars that had forced the narcotic onto China 100 years before. Everything about these monuments to international capitalists and pale big noses seemed foreign, including the British Big Ben chime of the giant clock tower over the customs house. Soon it would be up to the communists to decide what would follow, what would happen to these grand stone edifices. Shanghai was China's most modern, populous, and cosmopolitan city. One of the leading metropolises of the world, the Paris of the Orient was also home to tens of thousands of foreigners who were despised as imperialists by the Communist Party and its leader, Mao Zedong. The city was the launching point for major inland routes and international traffic, whether by boat, plane, train, or wooden cart, making it the epicenter for the massive exodus in the late 1940s. Stoked by the anticipated communist victory over the nationalist government headed by Chiang Kai-shek, panic and terror had first infected the wealthiest, most educated, and most privileged classes and sent them running in what they fully expected to be a brief exile. It was assumed that the communists would target the rich and the pampered in the same way that the Bolsheviks had gone after the czarist white Russians, many of whom had come to Shanghai as refugees from that 1917 revolution. No one knows precisely how many people fled Shanghai during the early years of the communist revolution. 
Scholars and journalists have estimated that more than a million people set off from or through that port city. Many of those who ran for the exits belonged to the city's capitalist and middle classes, who presumably had the most to lose under the communists. These two groups comprised about 5% and 20%, respectively, of the city's 6 million residents, or about 1.5 million people. On the other hand, the remaining 4.5 million who made up Shanghai's majority saw no need to escape. They included Shanghai's industrial workers, coolies, drivers, the destitute. But it was not only members of the upper classes who fled. They were joined by old regime loyalists, from high nationalist government officials to lowly foot soldiers, as well as those who simply got caught up in the frenzy or were especially fearful. Unfortunately, there are no records of the exodus since the retreating nationalists destroyed as many documents as they could, while the incoming communists inherited a country in such disarray that no accounting to the departures is known to have taken place. Last Boat Out of Shanghai by Helen Zia. Welcome back, Tom Harmon here with you. One other story I just wanted to put on your radar screen because this is this is one of those stories where, you know, uh, a few months down the road you look back and go, whoa, how did I miss that? As the world, you know, starts to explode or big things are happening or whatever. And in this case, it has to do with China. As you know, China has uh, cracked down on Hong Kong. No more democracy, no more illusion of democracy, no more pretend democracy. They're throwing people in prison like there's no tomorrow and, uh, you know, may well be harvesting their organs for all we know. At the same time this is going on, there are two U.S. aircraft carriers in the South China Sea, the Nimitz and the Ronald Reagan. And this is an area that's about 900 square miles that has been declared by China to be their territory. But other countries in the region say, no, it's not your territory, specifically Vietnam and the Philippines. They're very upset about this and saying, no, this is, these are international waters. The Chinese are saying they're not international waters. We're saying they're international waters, and we're going in there with two aircraft carriers and saying, we're going to be in this international water by way of proving that it's international water. So what do the Chinese say? I mean, again, remember in 18, what was it, 97, I think it was? Thereabouts. You had a, uh, a boat down in, uh, off the coast of Cuba, the USS Maine. Its boiler blew up. And that led straight to the, to the Spanish-American War a war that was promoted by a newspaper oligarch, Randolph Hearst, who you know, wrote to Frederick Remington, who was down there at the time, and said, you know, get me pictures and I'll, I'll give you the war. And they did and they did. And it was all about there in our waters. World War II was kicked off when Germany said, well, Austria and Northern Czechoslovakia, that's really our territory. These are our, these are, these are parts of greater Germany, don't you know? Well, here's what the, uh, the official Chinese press, this is the, um, the, the state-run Global Times is the name of the newspaper. Again, just consider the meaning of this, the, consequ- the potential consequences of this. And I don't put this out as, a, as so much as a question, you know, a, a kind of let's talk about this 
as I just, I just think it's really important that you know that China is saying this when we've got this idiot in the White House right now. This guy who does not know how to do international diplomacy. Quote, the South China Sea is fully within the grasp of the Chinese People's Liberation Army, parenthesis PLA, and any U.S. aircraft carrier movement in the region is solely at the pleasure of the PLA. Okay, so first of all, they're saying, you know, Americans are in our waters. They're declaring it international territory, but it's our waters. And our army has complete control over it, period, full stop. And then they go on to say, and this is the part that just, I got a chill when I read this. I actually, you know, uh, read this over the weekend. I read an article about it in the Financial Times. But it had the same quote in it from this Chinese newspaper. The South China Sea is fully within the grasp of the Chinese People's Liberation Army. Any U.S. aircraft carrier movement in the region is solely at the pleasure of the PLA, which has a wide selection of anti-aircraft carrier weapons like the DF-21D and the DF-26, quote, aircraft carrier killer missiles, close quote. We can blow your aircraft carriers plain old flat out out of the water. And we are declaring right now the right to do that if we choose. The U.S. military is saying that the USS Nimitz and the USS Ronald Reagan are in the South China Sea, quote, to support a free and open Indo-Pacific. But as the United States is essentially collapsing in terms of influence around the world, I mean, this is really problematic. So, anyway, can you imagine what President Tucker Carlson might do in a situation like this? I would frankly rather not, but... Anyhow, let's pick up a quick question here, uh, a quick comment before we go to a break in about a minute. David in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, David, what's up? Yeah, so I was talking about a uh, interaction with a Trump supporter. Back in uh-huh. uh, 2015 here in Tulsa, we had a volunteer deputy, if you will, who actually donated to the campaigns of the former sheriff here in Tulsa County. Well, he had shot a black man who was running away from Tulsa County Sheriff deputy. Well, we got a petition together and to force out the sheriff at the time. And the sheriff's name was Glenn. And I wrote on the back of my truck that I had, and I was working at McDonald's at the time. I wrote on the back, Glenn's got to go, because that's where we had, that's mm-hmm. what the battle cry at the what time happened? was. If you... And we had a customer come through, and he was threatening to get me fired, and my manager just laughed at him, actually. But he, huh. he just he started going crazy. You're going to get fired, because I'm going to get you fired. Amazing. Amazing. David, thank you. I mean, you know, it's a nation of bullies. So do you think that Tucker Carlson has a chance? Or frankly, do you think that the Republican Party is going to have to reinvent itself? And if so, how? Two other uh, things I want to just toss into the pot here. 
the first, which kind of goes along with my my question, I suppose, you know, are we looking at a bully presidency, basically, and a bully, you know, has the Republican Party basically become the party of bullies? And is it thus drawing out of the woodwork all these, all these, by and large, men, although there are a few women who are doing this, too, who themselves were probably bullies as children and reveled in it, and now as adults they get to be bullies? This is uh, from Oregon, from just, you know, 100 miles west of here on the seacoast, Oregon, uh, Lincoln City. This happened over the weekend. Seven men were arrested after police say they taunted a black family by yelling racial slurs and using Nazi salutes during a 4th of July incident. The men also challenged officers to a fight when the officers arrived on the scene in Lincoln City. And then they set off fireworks that were banned. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to fight you guys. I mean, it just... It says something, if nothing else, about the intelligence of these people. But uh, then, secondly, John, uh, Jonathan Bernstein is uh, tweeting, and I think this is a really interesting, ABC News tweeted, NASCAR driver Tyler Reddick fires back at President Trump's call for an apology from Bubba Wallace. Trump was tweeting, it must have been a segment on Fox News, right? Trump was tweeting, Bubba Wallace owes America an apology. Well, there was a noose in his garage, and it was the only noose in the only garage at all of the NASCAR place. It had apparently had been there for months, and he had just moved into that garage, and so he didn't know that it had been there for months. But, you know, it was a noose, and, you know, it was a legitimate concern. So anyhow, Tyler Reddick, who is another NASCAR driver, he fires back at Trump. He says, quote, we don't need an apology. We did what was right, and we will do just fine without your support. He says this to Trump. So Jonathan Bernstein asked this question, and it's a question that's been rolling around in my mind for eh, the better part of at least six months now, maybe a year. And I've mentioned this on this program a couple of times, but I just want to be very, very explicit about it. And that is that, uh, well, Bernstein's text, uh, his uh, tweet was, seriously, if Trump had given up on re-election and was mainly interested in cultivating a small but fanatical group of marks to make money off of in the future, how would he be acting differently? And I really think that this may well be what's going on. As much as we wring our hands, and I've been, you know, at the front of this line saying, you know, Bill Barr and Donald Trump are going to steal the election, or Republicans are planning, to, they're rigging the elections, it's happening in state after state. I think it's gone so far that, there's, that Trump has concluded that there's no way he's going to get reelected. So what he's doing is he's setting up, now he, you know, he's setting up his money-making opportunities for after he leaves the White House. Keep in mind, this is the guy who during the primary said, if I'm elected, I'll be the first man to make money on the presidency. And he's done that. We are shoveling millions of dollars into the Trump organization, whether it's, so, whether it's Secret Service, you know, quote, protecting him when he goes to his golf courses. He's golfed on his, you know, at, at least a year now out of the three and a half years he's been president. Or any of the hundreds of other scams and schemes that Trump has been running, you know, stealing the inaugural money and everything else. You know, he's making money off his, his election, but how does he make money off losing? Easy. He buys a television network. The Trump Organization is in negotiation to buy One American News. Or at least they were a few, few weeks ago. I haven't seen a recent story about it. So he gets a television network or he gets a show on Fox News. 
and he becomes the guy. He becomes the face of right-wing resistance, Nazis in America. You know, I talked about this last week. Today, I got, I believe, four different fundraisers from several different groups, but they all had the Trump-Pence logo on them. They all looked like I was being solicited to give money to Donald Trump's campaign for the White House. And yet, I'm sure that several of them were not that. Or I'm relatively sure. I didn't make a donation, so I can't completely test this. But if he is accepting repeated donations from people, then he's violating campaign finance laws, which we know he doesn't care about, because he's shut down the... the um, the federal agency that oversees this, the Federal Election Commission, by refusing to appoint enough people for its board to be functioning, there will be no enforcement this year of federal election laws. So, you know, he's doing all that. That kind of argues that he's actually trying to stay in the White House, but I think he knows he's lost it. And so what he's doing is these same people who are responding, who are buying the Trump coloring book and who are buying the Trump placemats and who are buying the Trump shot glasses. Yes, I've gotten those solicitations just in the last week. Those same people will be the followers of Trump on television when he's out of office. Mark my words. We'll see how this all goes, how this all plays out. Dave in uh, Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, Tom, not too much. You have a gift for understatement when you talk about uh, tension with China and the South China Sea, as as it were. But what I wanted to say was, look, I I listen to right-wing media, all right? And and the most recent example I can point to is a caller this weekend called into a right-wing pundit and was talking about, they were talking about Black Lives Matter. That was the topic. And the caller said, I don't understand why liberals don't say anything about attacking mosques because Allah supported the slave trade. Allah was a slave trader. He did it twice, Tom. He said Allah was a slave trader. Now that's deep. That's deep. Now it's easy to, you know, obviously he's getting confused with Muhammad, right? What's been written about Muhammad, which is not true either. But anyways, the Oh, well, you have St. Paul in, in First Thessalonians saying, treat your slaves well. He's not calling for liberation of them. I mean, slavery's all over these old religious texts. Yes, and the host, who always talks about how educated he is and how wealthy he is, did not correct this man. But the host did say, slavery is bad. And the caller agreed. The right-wing caller agreed that slavery was, quote-unquote, bad. Now, the reason why I bring this up What's a step? is because, yeah, well, well, and look, uh, John Bolton said, John Bolton said that uh, North Korea is going to give Trump an October surprise, that Kim Jong-un is going to meet with Trump, it's going to be completely fake, but it's going to boost Trump in the polls right around October. I say no. The Iranian arms embargo ends in October. Also, or, or, you know, the renewal. The renewal of the Iranian arms embargo takes place in October. And Iran, thanks to Saudi Arabia, has been, you know, enjoying the status of good guy. All right? Thanks to, you know, what you said about Saudi Arabia. Now, if that arms embargo, if, if Pompeo is rather loudly plus quietly working behind the scenes to scuttle that, to, to, to have it renewed, the arms embargo, Iran's military plays a very important counterbalancing role in their society, right? If, if the Iranian military is deprived arms, 
international arms sales, they are going to stop enjoying being the good guy. Iran is going to give Donald Trump his his October surprise, and Donald Trump is going to marshal all the resources of these Trumpers who are hiding their racism behind, you know, detest, you know they detest Islam. And that's all a cover for their racism. And to tell you the truth, it scares me because, look, all these right-wingers are going to the social media platform Parler. Isn't it ironic in the movie... Fahrenheit 451, it was called the Parlor Wall, where people got their instructions from the the Central Command, the Central Authorities. Really? I yes. didn't I didn't remember that. Yeah. The Parlor Wall. That's different. Yep. Yeah. Fascinating. Dave, thanks. Thanks for the call. That's that's amazing. And yeah, I'm very concerned about Iran and I'm very concerned about an October surprise. It's the home of the political revolution, occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week, right here. We'll be right back. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. So Donald Trump has deployed Patriot missiles to Iraq and pointed them at Iran, has gone out of his way to threaten Iran, saying that they will pay a very heavy price, you know, if any of their proxy groups, any of the Iranian-supported militias or groups, this is basically the Shiites, the majority of the population of Iraq. In Iraq, if any of them were to attack American forces, Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo will use this as an excuse to launch a war against Iran. This is insane. The New York Times is uh, reporting military commanders, the Pentagon has ordered military commanders to plan for an escalation 
of American combat in Iraq in the region and, quote, prepare a campaign to destroy an Iranian-backed militia group that has threatened more attacks against American troops. You know, we crippled their country with sanctions, and now we're threatening a war so that Trump can get reelected. There's a video about it over at TomHartman.com. Let's see here. Kathy watching us on Free Speech TV in Valparaiso, Indiana. Hey, Kathy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I have two things that I wanted to mention. The real estate problems that everybody's going through from the loss of their jobs, the evictions were held off to July 1st, but I heard on the news channel, the regular news channels, that a lot of the uh, landlords went ahead and filed over the uh, Internet the paperwork because that expired July 1st. Now, if a lot of people with coronavirus get evicted, that'll spread it even more. But the thing is, Donald Trump's in real estate. I could see him and his cronies going and swooping in, especially in New York, and taking over these these places that nobody can afford to stay in now. Number two, I know you don't like us smokers, but I'm a smoker. And what's really riled me up is this thing about the mask. Everybody's saying it's a violation of their rights. Well, they took our rights to smoke in public away, and I'm not out there hollering about it. You, mm-hmm. you understand what I'm saying? It's convenient. Yeah. And I it's think like it's, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Up. You know, if, if somebody's blowing out, you know, cancer-causing smoke or if somebody's blowing out death-causing viruses, in either That's case, as a society, we have the right to say, no, I'd really rather not inhale that. Right. I had a gentleman in the grocery store the other day, Saturday see me, and I'm asking, oh, you're one of them. I didn't have the energy or the ump to argue with him, and he wasn't wearing a mask, so I didn't want to be close <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, that's that's thinking. where. Go ahead. I, well, I got to thinking on those two things. The big picture is with Trump is real estate, and that's a way for mm. him and his cronies to go in and scoop up a lot of it. And two was the mask thing. It's just driving me nuts that these people won't yeah. wear these masks. You know, <laughs> but they. They don't want you to smoke. <laughs> like, some of the largest, <laughs> yeah, some of the largest fortunes in America were cemented during the 1930s, uh, the late 1920s right. and the early 1930s. And the and the way that they did it was that you know the very very wealthy people went into the depression with a lot of cash, and right. as business after business after business failed, as as home after home after home was foreclosed on, as uh, real you know commercial real estate you know went down the tubes, these very very wealthy people just bought up everything in sight, in addition to a large chunk of the stock market. And a generation later, they are, well, not even a generation, you know, just a few years later, as FDR got us out of the Great Depression, they were sitting pretty. And, and uh, there are great fortunes being built right now in the, in the ashes well, of this. Well, Go ahead. Well, that was my theory, that he really don't care who gets sick and who gets evicted and all that, because that's yeah. another way for him to scam everybody out of their property. <laughs> I agree. And I think with the stock war. market... Right. And I think with the stock market, the very, very wealthy have had an opportunity now with the market going back up to sell their stock holdings. And there was a really fascinating article uh, maybe a week ago. I think it was in the Financial Times about this explosion in retail trading. All these, you know, people who are at home and unemployed have signed up, you know, literally millions of them in the last three or four months have signed up for online trading accounts. 
And these are like, you know, working class people who are buying, who are playing the stock market right now, thinking that they're going to get rich because they've got nothing else. And it's a legal way to gamble. And they're going to get screwed because the big institutional investors have been staying out of the market. They know what's going on. They know where this thing is going. And, uh, you know, the, the, the rich always seem to win in these things. Kathy, thank you for the call. And, uh, and thanks so much. Hey, we're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican war on voting. Coming out soon is the hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's gonna be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Welcome back, Tom Harmon here with you, Mike, in Columbus, New Mexico. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hello. Yes, I'm in Columbus, hey. New Mexico, and I went out yesterday, and I bumped into a lot of people not wearing their masks properly. They're wearing them around their neck. And so I hmm. asked one fellow why he was doing such a thing, because obviously he had a mask. And he said he was doing it because the law says he has to wear a mask, but it didn't say how he had to wear a mask which I thought was ridiculous. Oh, and I, I asked him if he was a Trumper, and he was proud to confess that he was a Trumper. And so I just right. turned around and walked away. There's no sense of wasting your breath there. Yeah. And I asked another young man doing the same thing, and his thing was, yes, he was protesting being forced to wear a mask. And I said, well, hmm. you know that the mask does some good, and I'm 73, and you should wear it to protect me. And he didn't like that too much. And I said, right. well, do you have anything that's better than wearing a mask? Because his answer basically was, well, a mask doesn't really do you any good anyway. And then I pointed out, yeah, but it does protect me. And I said, do you have anything better than a mask? And he obviously didn't have a good answer to that. And I said, well, I wear my mask, and my mask actually protects you more than 100%. By reason and logic and science, it works this way. You know that a dry mask or a wet mask, a wet mask, a wet rag picks up better than a dry rag, and I sprayed my mask with cooking oil. Now, I said, it is, by science says that the coronavirus is 80% oil. And oil sticks to oil like glue sticks to glue. So by wearing my mask, any virus that touches my mask gets stuck there and doesn't yeah. get to you. I, I, I get it, Mike. I can't, you know, I can't, uh, you know, recommend that people do that, but I get it. And I, you know, just I, I'm concerned that you engaged, you engaged too much with this guy. Anyhow, thank you for the, for the story. Eileen in Pittsburgh. Hey, Eileen, what's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know what I do when somebody comes around me and doesn't have a mask on, or even when they have one on, but they get too close. But if they don't want to have one on, I just bend over and start coughing like mad. And they usually ah! go away. 
You know, I actually, I had another one of this a couple of days ago. I had another one of these guys, you know, walking down the, down the path and he wasn't going to move kind of thing. And I thought I should have brought a little bit of crushed red pepper that I could snort and give myself a sneezing fit. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, that's exactly like, what I do. And, you know, I have a daughter who's a medical technologist and she noticed that if she'd stop in the store on the way home, people would look at her with her scrubs on and avoid her. And I thought, well, uh-huh. if worse gets to worse, I'll go out and buy a set of scrubs and wear those. <laughs> there you go. Eileen, thank you. Thanks for sharing those stories. That's great. Steve in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hey, Tom. How you doing? Good. I just wanted to say, uh, respond. You asked a question earlier about was this working in terms mm-hmm. of President Trump's rhetoric, all that. It does not right. appear to be working yet, if you, believe, if you you know believe in the polls. But one thing that does concern me is it could start to peel away at some of the suburban vote if we continue to see unrest, if we continue to see looting, rioting. Mm-hmm. That very well could start to scare some suburban voters, and that definitely would maybe start to have an impact. That's the thing that does. Yeah. Although, although we haven't seen anything like that in weeks, so I'm. Well, what about in Portland I'm this sca- weekend? Well, yeah, we, that was that was small and local. I, you know, I think that the it wouldn't surprise me if Trump and his buddies tried to provoke something, uh, you know, or even or even cause one of these situations. You know, in the hopes of Trump coming in like Richard Nixon. You know, I mean, this is Trump is running Nixon's playbook. Right. Law and order was a euphemism for keeping white people safe from black people. And then he had to, you know, make sure that everybody understood that black people were dangerous and scary and all that kind of stuff. And that was, you know, Nixon, that was the subtext of all of Nixon's rhetoric. Trump is essentially doing the same thing and saying the same thing. And wouldn't surprise me at all if Trump is trying to crank something up. And it's interesting that, you know, what happened in Portland was, as far as I know, basically not that big a deal. But I'm guessing, I'm guessing, in fact, that our caller who's no longer on the line in Charlottesville uh, must have been watching Fox News because it got no coverage at all on the national media on MSNBC or CNN, at least to the best of my knowledge. But I know Fox is just constantly looking for any little incident where they can zoom in on a black person in the context of you know, burning or fire, you know, fire. Now they're talking about, oh, my God, you know, people are being killed in the inner cities. The through line, the storyline here is fairly obvious. Today on the Tom Hartman University Book Club, we're reading from Barbara Honiger's book, October Surprise. The October Surprise, the book is about was the 1980 Reagan campaign led by Bill Casey, who Reagan later made the head of the CIA, but he was Reagan's campaign director in 1980, about their actions with the Iranian government cutting a deal where if the Iranians would hold the hostages throughout the election of 1980 to make Jimmy Carter look bad and weak, then if they won the election, they would sell weapons to Iran, which, of course, is a deal that they kept. We know of this as the Iran-Contra scandal. So I'm reading from the very last chapter. It's the epilogue, and it's titled A Kinder, Gentler Nation. President Reagan signed intelligence authorizations in 1984 and 1985, which were considered licenses to kill, according to top government officials. As we have seen, Oliver North and Amiram Nears 
U.S.-Israeli covert operations were authorized by a still-secret accord, never revealed to congressional intelligence committees as required by law, which may have also authorized political assassinations in the name of counterterrorism. We have seen that Vice President George Bush, this is the elder, met with Amiram Nir in Israel in late 1986, when he could have signed the accord with Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres, for whom Nir worked. Author Seymour Hirsch has charged Oliver North with being President Reagan's assassination planner. We've reviewed reports that North boasted that anyone who leaked or threatened to reveal the administration's secret Iran initiative would be killed, and that some of the North Secord Hakim team were reportedly involved in political assassinations under the umbrella of counterterrorism. Given this context, it's instructive to note what has happened to many of the individuals who were reportedly involved in or knew about the secret negotiations between Iran and the 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign and or about secret U.S. arms deliveries to the Khomeini regime in the early 1980s. So then she goes through the list of people. Dead. William Casey, CIA director, who reportedly attended meetings in Paris, France on October 19 and 20, 1980 with Iranian officials and agents of French intelligence to arrange an arms for hostages delay deal with Iran. The morning of Casey's first scheduled under oath testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee on the secret Iran initiative, he was struck by seizures in his CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, and underwent speech incapacitating left brain surgery shortly thereafter. Had he lived to testify, according to a lifelong friend and counsel, Milton Gould, Casey would have told, quote, the entire truth, end quote. He died on May 6, 1987. Dead. Imiram Nir died November 30th, 1988, in a plane crash in Mexico. Nir, who resigned in March of 1988, had been chief counterterrorism advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres. He was Oliver North's Israeli counterpart in the Near North covert operations covered by a still-secret accord reportedly signed by Perez and President Reagan, or according to some U.S. government sources, by someone at a lower level. Easily Vice President George Bush during his late 1986 meeting with Nir in Jerusalem when Nir briefed Bush on the Iran arms initiative. Informed sources suspect sabotage of Nir's plane when Oliver North sought to introduce the secret U.S.-Israel accord as part of the defense in his trial and conspiracy charges, the Reagan-Bush administration refused to produce the document, and the conspiracy charge was dropped. Near died two months before the start of Oliver North's trial. The truth of the final entry in Michael Ledeen's book, Perilous Statecraft, may have something to do with his timely death. Quote, insofar as anyone may have had something dramatically new to add to our knowledge of Iran-Contra, it is likely to be Amaram Near. Dead. Cyrus Hashemi died in London on July 21st, 1986, two days after being diagnosed as having a rare, virulent form of fast-acting cancer. Died two days after his diagnosis. According to Iranian-American arms dealer Hoshaglavi, with whom he worked on a major Iran arms-related sting operation in the 1985 and early 86, Hashemi was assassinated by U.S. government agents. According to self-proclaimed CIA pilot Richard Brennecke, Hashemi had been a participant in the October 20, 1980 Paris meeting with 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign manager Bill Casey, Iran arms dealer Haoshang Lavi, Iranian officials and agents of French intelligence to work out the original arms for hostage delay deal with Iran. Before his death, Hashemi was reported to have said that his 1981-82 U.S. arms sales to Iran had been necessary 
who obtained the release of the 52 U.S. hostages, released moments after Reagan's inauguration in 1981 and had been approved by the CIA, which Casey headed. Hashemi was also the instigator of the Arms for Hostages proposal, which resulted in the August 1985 tow missile shipment to Iran. Dead, the Ayatollah Mohammed Beheshti, who reportedly sent a personal representative, according to one source, Jalal al-Din Farsi, to the pre-election Paris meeting of October 19, 1980, with 1980 Reagan-Bush campaign manager Bill Casey, and according to some reports, also with George Herbert Walker Bush. Shetty died in a bomb explosion at Islamic Republican Party headquarters in Iran on June 28, 1981. Dead, William Buckley, CIA station chief in Beirut, and it continues. October Surprise by Barbara Hunter. Brian in Squim, Washington. Hey, Brian, what's up? Hi. So I live up on the North Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. And on June 3rd, our community, Squim, had a demonstration for Black Lives Matter. There were more young people at this demonstration than I'd ever seen before in our community. So it was kind of a milestone. Everyone was wearing masks and very well behaved. There were no incidents with the police. About two-thirds of the way through the demonstration, men with open carry showed up long guns and sidearms right across the street. It was so alarming to some of the attendees that they fled. They had their children there. They were definitely intimidated. This group was incited to uh, come there to protect the community because of the rumors of armed busloads of Antifa which were traveling to our community to... Oh, these people saw one of those, those phony face, Facebook posts that are being put there by uh, foreign oligarchs. Uh, you know, I completely would believe that that would be the case. But I also yeah. believe that they were inspired by Trump. That's just another yeah. manifestation of the kind of, you know, experience. I mean, he's no Severagnola, but he definitely mm. seems to get under people's skin. Now, at the same day, there was a family from Spokane area in a white bus, multiracial family, who were traveling for a camping trip out in Forks, which is west of our community, about 100 miles or so. And they were confronted directly by residents who showed up with long guns and were questioning them about their political beliefs. They told them they were not Antifa. They were there for a camping trip. Well, they followed them from the parking lot down. It's called A Road nearby. And while they were there, they were the family was setting up their camp and having a good time. And these people were rolling by with their cars and their trucks, spraying gravel on them. Well, after a while, they heard gunfire nearby and chainsaws. Well, they decided they'd better leave. So as they packed everything up, got on their bus, and went down the A road, get back to the highway, they suddenly realized they couldn't leave because somebody had felled at least a dozen trees across the road. And in an interview, the, the woman who was with them, the daughter, said it felt like a hostage situation. The police finally showed up, the sheriff, and some students nearby had chainsaws and cut the, the trees out of the way, which were incidentally on national forest land. So the FBI has been looking into that. But this is just um, kind of uh, not symbolic, but I think yeah. it's a, a, what's going to happen more and more as Trump raises the level of his rhetoric 
and it gets more and more volatile and dangerous. And yeah, uh, I agree with you, Brian. This story, by the way, made you know, national press, and it's been confirmed that those those guys who showed up with the guns and the chainsaws had seen a Facebook posting saying that Antifa was coming to their town to terrorize them. And it was directly related to what Trump had to say. Yep. Now, the funny yep. thing is, and a friend of mine said, this is what you do. You ask them, well, do you guys like Nazis? <laughs> Uh, did, did you know that your father, if he fought in World War II, was Antifa? They don't know. I think a lot of them. Means. Yeah, I think Brian. Well, a, you're right. They don't understand that Antifa means anti-fascist. But secondly, I think a lot of them actually do like Nazis. That's the really scary part of it. Brian, thank you for the call. What a story. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 